welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today we have a special episode about a subject that I am very familiar with and arguably have been obsessed with for many, many years. It's something that we used to cover on the podcast very frequently, but we haven't actually covered it in a while, and that is the neoconservative war hawks in Washington, D.C., and what they're currently most active with now. Over the past couple of years, most of what we would describe as the neocons, Bill Kristol, Max Boot, David Frum, Robert Kagan, a lot of these more commonly known names have been heavily involved in trying to build some kind of consensus against Donald Trump in various ways. Pumping continuous, nonstop anti-Russian hysteria, trying to get a primary candidate to challenge Trump in the 2020 elections, you name it. But there's another side to this that is, to me, very, very interesting and one that we shouldn't be surprised by. And that is that these never-Trumper neocons actually do not make up the entire neocon landscape in D.C., actually far from it. Some of the most prominent Project for the New American Century neocons that we know of are actually very much allied with the Trump administration. And today I'm going to interview somebody who's kind of an expert in this relationship and who has been tracking these activities for a long time. His name is Eli Clifton. He's an investigative journalist and writer who has had articles appear in The Nation, The Intercept, and Loblog. But most prolifically, he has written for Loblog, which is a great outlet that I recommend everybody follow. It's one of the most valuable neocon tracking outlets in, in the country, by far. Eli has been tracking the activities of far-right policy wonks and neoconservatives in the Washington, D.C. orbit for over a decade. And more specifically, he has spent a lot of time recently, especially since Trump got in office, exposing the activities of the think tank known as the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Now, this is a think tank that has come up before on this podcast. I would describe it as probably the most prominent neoconservative think tank that is actually in bed with the Trump administration currently. There are other neoconservative think tanks that are still very active, like the American Enterprise Institute, but they do not appear to be having as strong as an influence over the Trump administration as the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. This think tank was formed as a response to 9-11. Jack Kemp, long-hailed hero of the neocons, was FDD's founding chairman, along with Gene Kirkpatrick, was one of the founding board of directors. The FDD has been long focused on quote-unquote pressure campaigns against U.S. imperialist enemies like Iran, Syria, and most recently North Korea. The CEO of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies is a guy named Mark Dubowitz, who appears on television and radio frequently. The president and founder of the organization is Clifford May, who used to have a column in the Wall Street Journal, he used to appear on television frequently, but not as much anymore. Prominent members, fellows of this think tank include former CIA director and PNAC signatory James Woolsey, former Reagan official and PNAC signatory Michael Ledeen, and Quillette anti-social justice warrior writer Jonathan Kay. They appear right now to have more of a heavy influence on Iran policy in D.C. than perhaps any other single organization in D.C. And that includes all the other neocon think tanks, 
the neoliberal think tanks like the CFR, Brookings, this think tank, the FDD, appears, at least right now, to have a very narrow, singular purpose, and that is regime change in Iran. And just an example, here's a quote from one of FDD's members uh, from 2010. A senior fellow at FDD in 2010 said, I counted up the other day. I've written about 25,000 words about bombing Iran. Even my mom thinks I've gone too far. So without further ado, here is our interview with Foundation for Defense of Democracy's expert, Eli Clifton. So Eli, you have been writing uh, about the Foundation for Defense of Democracies for a really long time, before I had even heard of the organization. Based on your years of studying the FTD and their activities, um, what in your mind differentiates this particular think tank from other foreign policy-centric think tanks in D.C.? Well, FDD, or the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, first and foremost, has a a, a laser-like focus on Iran and on uh, the the, the Gulf and the Middle East, far more so than any other think tank I can think of in Washington or possibly in the world. FDD uh, also notably really draws uh, a close parallel in their positions to that of Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party uh, and his and Netanyahu's supporters who are very much aligned with the Republican Jewish coalition. FDD's f- funding network, their board, uh, has some overlap with the Republican Jewish coalition. And the, the RJC and FDD are, are very much sort of the, the, the biggest um, uh, boosters of sort of a Benjamin Netanyahu or the Likud party in Israel's um, um, p- policy line in Washington. Uh, th- th- there's no organizations that really toe that line as close as FDD and the Republican Jewish coalition do. Interesting. So would you say that this is a, a more specific, narrow mindset than even the other more, maybe more broad agendas that other Israeli lobbying groups like APEC push in D.C.? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. FDD is I mean, the American Public Affairs uh, Committee, APAC, um, uh, tries to, as much as possible, and they've struggled with that in recent years, but as much as possible tries to sort of have a big tent and, and represent uh, or at least um, give, give voice to the positions of the entire array of the Israeli political spectrum. Um uh, FDD is, is far more focused than that. Uh, very much, let's say, sort of a, uh, uh, a, a, a their their position. There's very little daylight between where FDD's positions are and the Likud parties. That's very interesting, and I think that's a really important distinction because a lot of the way people, you know, generally a lot of Israel critics um, will sort of broadly discuss it, um, and I think that's an important discussion distinction to make is that the Netanyahu Likud viewpoint is is a very specific, very hawkish, very far-right sort of slant. Absolutely. And, and it's one that uh, that honestly has pushed FDD and, and, and Netanyahu's sort of allies and supporters very much into sort of a space that, that, that is more occupied by, by what's known as the Gulf lobby of the Emiratis and the Saudis than... Um, than the, the the broader sort of pro-Israel camp. Um, it, it, it's a very hawkish, very anti-Iran uh, um, uh, space, w- w- one which, which uh, we, you know, it's really sort of the Likud party, UAE, Saudi Arabia. F- FDD is certainly in a space that, that's, that's uh, 
as, it, it, more similar to where Saudi Arabia and UAE are in terms of their uh, desire to push U.S. policy in a more hawkish direction. Uh, and for that matter, UAE and Saudi Arabia have also become uh, far more hawkish in terms of their regional agenda over the past uh, uh, several years. And it, I mean, it seems like the FDD's fo- focus, as you describe it, is primarily focused on Iran. I, I would suppose that would mean regime change in Iran. But what other think tanks in sort of this DC policy wonk orbit would you place FDD next to in terms of its style? Is, would it be something that would be similar to like the American Enterprise Institute, Hudson Institute, or would you say this is more in the style of, you know, the, the classic neoconservative think tank PNAC or Project for the New American Century? Yeah, I mean, well, PNAC was more of a convening group. Um, uh, they, they didn't pr- produce far less material than what FDD produces. FDD is prolific in terms of the amount of of, of placement uh, of of media that 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 they get from their experts. Um, so, so in that sense, maybe you could compare it just in terms of sheer numbers of how often they get published to a more conventional think tank. Uh, but to be fair to FDD, they, they really are second to none. And, and I can't really think of, to, to be fair, any real parallel in terms of, um, in terms of their, their ability to, to get their message out and, and that, that narrow, narrow focus, which, which makes them incredibly effective and potentially very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, it, it's, and it seems to be knowledge. This is, not, this is not something that would really surprise anybody who's familiar with the DC landscape. I think Robert Baer, um, uh, the author uh, behind the the book that's the film Syriana was based on. I don't know if you've seen this film, Eli, um, but there, yeah. the, do you recall the the think tank that was sort of fictionally represented in the film uh, called the Committee to Liberate Iran? Yeah, yeah. And apparently, according to Robert Baer, that's directly based on the FDD. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that FDD uh, is a lot of the same people who were who were making the case for Iraq. Uh, they certainly did uh, um, ad- advocate for the invasion of Iraq. They had a front group that was like women for Iraqi liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was or Iraqi women for 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 uh, supposedly an Iraqi women's group pushing for 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 the. Uh, for, for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, um, and and on Iran, they they've made common cause with pretty much anybody who would who would toe that line as well. Uh, I, I think that they've become, um, while they deny at times that they are in support of regime change, uh, their track record simply runs counter to that. That there's no shortage of examples of their experts uh, espousing uh, a clear support for regime change, uh, or if not that, then. Than openly talking about uh, advocating for for bombing Iran uh, it, to what to what ends I suppose you could ask it they might say well that's how you get Iran to end their nuclear program but I mean anybody can see that that's that's clearly the the pretext for a larger military uh, um, uh, commitment to 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 regime change in Iran. Well, let's sort of break down the psychology behind what you just said because to me this is a really interesting thing that's happened with the neoconservative movement is there was a time period during the Bush administration where a lot of neoconservatives would openly talk about uh, regime change in Iran. And this was something that was seemingly okay to talk about in sort of the public sphere. It appears that around the end of the Bush administration, perhaps the beginning of the Obama administration, this rhetoric was softened um, by neoconservatives 
And it appears even the FDD itself is trying to sort of play like play a double game where you actually said in a recent article, I, I believe this one maybe you wrote a few weeks ago, you said, quote, while simultaneously denying their support for war with Iran, FDD scholars have repeatedly urged U.S. military actions against the Islamic Republic. Is this, would you describe this as simply just a PR maneuver by, by the FDD and other neoconservatives who know that the public and the American public have no appetite at all for attacking Iran military, so they need to sort of couch their rhetoric in something else that sounds less offensive to people? I mean, wh- what do you think is going on here? Well, uh, I, I suspect there's, uh, and this is pure speculation on my part, but uh, I, I guess I would I would guess that there's sort of two components to why FDD and other advocates uh, of regime change, or at least of U.S. military intervention against Iran, um, uh, feel they must uh, uh, avoid at least as much as possible advocating openly for regime change. And for starters, it's, yeah, that there's very little appetite for another U.S. military uh, commitment in the region, let alone one that would be much bigger than the, than, than the invasion of Iraq. Um, the, you know, the invasion of Iraq went poorly. The American public is, doesn't look positively at that uh, endeavor. Um, so, so at that se- at that level, I think that the enthusiasm that was more explicit amongst the neoconservatives uh, shortly after the invasion of Iraq um, to, to to continue this this endeavor uh, in Iran um, uh, has sort of become a, a touchier subject for them. Um, I, I think there is another aspect that, that that what happened during the Obama administration, which is that the Obama White House made a pretty compelling case, um, according to polling, uh, for diplomacy with Iran. Uh, they made a fairly uh, um, uh, in-depth detailed, uh, persuasive uh, explanation for what were U.S. interests in the Middle East, what were the U.S. interests in uh, trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, and why a a diplomatic solution to this was preferable to uh, other other strategies uh, that might Bring the United States closer to to another war in the region. So I, I think that in that sense, FDD has been in a very tough spot. We've outright seen people like uh, FDD's uh, CEO um, Mark Dubowitz uh, lying about about uh, FDD's support for regime change because he, he wants to be the critic of the Iran deal without. Uh, uh, be the, the most outspoken critic, I would say, probably in Washington of the Iran deal, at least at a major think tank, uh, while not wanting to take ownership of what the alternatives to that would most likely look like. And now we're getting to stare that down, which Iran, uh, you know, is debating whether or not to stay within the confines of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, and we've had uh, about a month now of heightened tensions in the Gulf between the U.S. and Iran, um, you know, all sorts of saber rattling going on. And and I think that he's in some way in a tough spot because now the American public uh, gets to ask uh, or gets to assess whether uh, the Trump administration doing what FDD most, mostly had advocated for with withdrawing from the JCPOA uh, has actually made uh, the United States safer or closer to uh, uh, attaining its, uh, it, it, it's, its or, or accomplishing its goals in, in the Middle East. Just talking about the agreement, would you say that FDD was one of the most sort of successful players in getting this agreement reversed? Yeah, I think that they were uh, not just one of the most successful in getting it reversed, 
they were the, one of the most influential in um, uh, casting doubt on the Obama administration's nuclear diplomacy while it was occurring. Uh, FDD was vastly overrepresented compared to any other think tank or group of experts on Capitol Hill when it came to having being appearing as witnesses uh, for congressional hearings. Um, they were the go-to voices uh, um, advocating for, for, for continuing to ratchet up sanctions and, and, and not finding a diplomatic resolution to the tensions over Iran's uh, nuclear program. Yeah, so I, I think that they were incredibly effective <clears throat> at uh, helping to, again, sort of toe the line that Benjamin Netanyahu was advocating against any diplomatic um, um, progress between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, and, and at the same time, I, I think that as the Trump administration came in, um, there's every uh, indication that FDD was a pretty influential voice in in explaining not just uh, why the United States should um, should abrogate from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, but also uh, what would be sort of a sanctions framework that the United States could could and should impose. I was going to ask you this question later, but let's skip ahead to this idea of this maximum pressure campaign. There does seem to be this interesting neoconservative psychology, and I don't know if they're being disingenuous about this or not. I mean, it seems like they are, but give me your opinion on this idea that when you I mean, when you see these FDD people come on television, um, they say very similar things to you know other hardcore neoconservatives like Dan Senor, like Bill Kristol, like people like Robert Kagan, where they you know they won't say outright that they want a military strike to take out the Iranian regime they will act like this is sort of a pressure campaign to essentially convince the Iranian government that we mean business and that we will strike them if they do anything to violate our you know in ratcheting up of these sanctions or this you know in any way and it seems like they this that's the way they frame it is that this is a pressure campaign to get Iran to maybe think that we will attack them. But at the same time, they're saying that we don't want to actually attack Iran. And I'm just wondering, what what is your thoughts on that mentality that they claim to hold? I mean, do you think that, they, that they're actually being transparent in what they're really doing, that this is sort of a strategic, psychological thing, game in some way? Well, I, I, I would say that if there's a point in which there's some, definitely some insincerity here, it's that they downplay the potential risks of this maximum pressure campaign, <laughs> whether <course>. or not <laughs> they be, whether or not they believe that Iran will, um, with faced with the right amount of pressure, um, uh, become deferential to uh, uh, the laundry list of, <laughs> of of changes that Mike Pompeo put forward um, to make Iran into a so-called uh, what is it normal uh, uh, nation. Um, I, I think most people would consider that to be highly unlikely. Uh, maybe they believe that. But regardless um, of that, and I guess we could debate the fine points of whether Iran is likely to 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 surrender to to this um, um, pressure campaign. But putting that aside for a moment, uh, anytime you ratchet up pressures in such a way, uh, you increase the likelihood of, of of a military confrontation of some sort. And what a military confrontation would look like with Iran would be uh, devastating. Uh, it would be uh, it would make the Iraq War look um, look pretty minor by point of comparison, uh, and, and it would be very bad for not just not just the United States, not just Iran, but probably the entire Gulf region, let alone to to the global economy um, 
and, and to the energy markets, uh, it, it would be devastating. And, and I think that um, you know that's the way that uh, I think the Obama administration did a pretty good job of of showing that hey, the United States and Iran are potentially on a collision course. Um, we can't say when the spark would occur that could lead to um, a military uh, conflict that could get out of control, but when you have these heightened tensions, it makes it more likely. Um, and we should take the efforts to try to uh, reduce those tensions uh, and, and make sort of diplomacy the, 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 the first choice of how both countries would seek to resolve whatever comes down the line in terms of potential conflict. Um, what I don't see presented by FDD or their neoconservative allies um, or their Likudnik allies is, is an explanation of, of exactly what would be the de-escalating measures if there is something unpredictable that occurs. What happens when, um, you know, U.S. sailors accidentally cross into Iranian waters again and are detained? What's yeah. the de-escalating measure when you have a maximum pressure campaign? Uh, and, and that's where I think there's an enormous danger, particularly in the Gulf, um, that's being completely um, uh, downplayed, disregarded. Um, and, and, and it's something that that, that, that has the, the potential to really uh, escalate uh, dangerously uh, under, this, under this maximum pressure, maximum tension, um, and, and with no clear off-ramps. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is this maximum pressure campaign is is really what it's doing is raising the stakes and the potential for something, a spark to really set off a terrible military confrontation. And, and the disingenuousness perhaps comes in where it's, I'm, I'm sure, I would absolutely guarantee you that some people in, the, in Trump's administration and the FDD deliberately want to raise the stakes for Iran, kind of almost like the old cowboy movie where it's like, pick up the gun, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we were seeing something moving towards that um, over the past uh, few weeks in the Gulf with what appeared to be tensions sort of being fueled by John Bolton uh, trying to, uh, um, you know, create these escalating tensions, escalating rhetoric towards towards Iran. and, and you know the Iranians uh, uh, are certainly don't don't exactly do their part to de-escalate matters either. That's not their style. Uh, which brings back to wh- why exactly do you think would one think that this maximum pressure campaign would work against Iran? It's never worked. The JCPOA was probably um, you know some some argue that that was success because of sanctions pressure. Uh, others would say that it was successful because uh, it, it actually was engaging Iran as as, as sort of a normal actor uh, in an negotiated framework um, through diplomatic processes that, 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 that are sort of a, a multinational and accepted platforms uh, for resolving problems. Um, uh, there's very little precedent to show to suggest that Iran responds positively towards these maximum pressure um, um, uh, strategies, uh, unless, of course, your goal is not actually to de-escalate, because if your goal is really to win with a maximum pressure uh, strategy, you need to be able to show what the off-ramp is exactly. uh, to relieve pressure. W- what is it you're willing to trade exactly to reduce these 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 pressures? Uh, and, and this administration and FDD are not very quick to say exactly what those are, and it's always moving goalposts. And, and I think that it's fair to ask whether they're being, uh, um, you know, honest about about what exactly their goals are because once you've gone to maximum pressure when those are unsuccessful as they often are with iran um 
you know, you start to talk about, well, you know, what about a targeted uh, cruise missile strike uh, on Iranian nuclear facilities? What about, um, you know, it becomes a slippery slope in, into actions that, that can very quickly uh, escalate into, into, into wars. Yeah, and I'm sure some of these actual war games, you know, that are being planned are are you know largely kept under lock and key for the most part. There was that strange leak um, that I'm sure you probably remember from I think it was maybe last month. The New York Times got a hold of some internal leak saying that 130,000 troops were being planned to be sent to the Middle East for a potential conflict with Iran. Um, so sometimes these things do seem to leak, um, but then at other times there you know there's these donors uh, behind the Foundation for Defense Democracies, these oligarchs like uh, Sheldon Adelson, um, who literally said, you know, openly said we should literally just drop a nuke on Iran, um, like in the middle of the desert and say like Tehran's next, um, if you don't completely surrender to us. What do you make of the Adelson's comment, outrageous comments about nuking Iran to send a warning to them? I mean, do you feel that the people in FTD maybe privately share this opinion and, and don't want to say it publicly, or did is did he slip? Is this just something candid? I mean, like what what was what do you make of that statement? Uh, it was it was in 2013 um, that he made that comment. It was not at an FTD event. There okay. were nobody else from FTD on the stage, is my recollection. Uh, I think it was Brett Stevens then at the Wall Street Journal. Okay. Um, uh, the yeah you know, after he made those comments. Um, uh, FDD did make a statement saying that well they they didn't really uh, I, I believe that they were they were asked about well one of your biggest donors is that is that uh, you know, reflected in in FDD's positions uh, and they say well you know that's not our preferred uh, strategy um, but sort of shrugged it off but ultimately didn't really engage on it um, uh, since then Mark Dubowitz said that uh, Sheldon Adelson is no longer a funder of FDD because supposedly FDD is not hawkish enough for Adelson. On, on matters related to Iran. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. Uh, it, it certainly is, is, is a helpful narrative for Dubowitz, who's tried to claim that he's not the, the uber-Iran hawk that he's widely perceived to be. That's fascinating. Well, I mean, but I would just point to the other data point, which is that um, we do know that Bernie Marcus, uh, who, who pays for about a quarter of FDD's budget, he's the billionaire co-founder of Home Depot, has said that he says he's literally said Iran is the devil, and he doesn't seem to have any problem with what FDD's positions are, and he's continued to give generously to FDD. He was also one of uh, Donald Trump's biggest campaign donors, uh, so obviously he's happy with what he's seeing. One would assume, based off of his ongoing uh, pattern of giving. So we already know there's a lot of overlap between the FDD and the Trump administration in terms of direct collaboration. Uh, and there's even some members from the FTD who were made it inside the Trump administration. But there also appears to be, as you just pointed out, this extreme overlap between Trump's biggest donors and the biggest donors behind the FTD, Bernard Marcus being one of them, who you just brought up. So would you say that the idea uh, that you know Trump is sort of an outsider, that he's not part of this establishment— seems to be contradicted by the the idea that people like Sheldon Adelson um, and Bernard Marcus are are such big supporters. I just want you to talk about this idea that there there's still this mentality that the neoconservatives in the DC establishment and the people who share their views are somehow all never Trumpers. But 
it seems like there's actually a much more nuanced process here taking place than simply all the neocons hate Trump. I mean, it seems that seems obviously not true now, and I wanted you to respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've seen a very interesting uh, um, progression with a lot of the neoconservatives, uh, some of whom are continue to be never Trumpers, like Bill Kristol, um, Max Boot, but we ha- and Max Boot, uh, but we've seen others such as Elliot Abrams, and probably actually the most significant one I would point to is, is sort of hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer, um, who also has given uh, generously to FDD, um, and and he had actually unlike Bernie Marcus and Sheldon Adelson, he actually did not contribute to Donald Trump's uh, uh, campaign efforts or or to outside groups supporting uh, Donald Trump's presidency. Um, he he was supposedly going to be the stalwart um, Republican mega donor, neoconservative donor who uh, was going to go to the mat being never Trump, but he turned around and gave a million dollars to Trump's inaugural uh, inauguration. Oh, wow. Um, or inaugural committee. So even Paul Singer, who was supposed to, was I think actually playing quite a significant role in, in showing um, at least some members of the Republican Party and, um, and, and obviously the, some neoconservatives who he had funded and partnered with in the past, that, that there was going to be at least one of sort of the major uh, Republican mega donors that was willing to sit this out. Um, even he sort of uh, backtracked a bit, um, quite a bit, I should say, given his, his, his staunchly anti-Trump, never-Trump uh, positions during the campaigns. So I, I think that there has steady trickle of, of, of neoconservatives coming over to the Trump camp. Uh, obviously, we saw Elliot Abrams make his way into the administration, which uh, I think a lot of us actually questioned whether Abrams would be would be able to get into the administration. It was clear he wanted to, but his never-Trump positions had uh, supposedly uh, caused a major uh, hurdle for, for Trump accepting him into the administration. So there's that aspect as well, which is that, uh, you know, the, the Trump White House is one that, that, that holds grudges. They keep lists. Uh, they made it clear they were keeping lists uh, around the time of, uh, of the inauguration. And that they, at that time, said they weren't going to take any never Trumpers into the White House. Uh, they've been slow to do so. I think that they've started to allow you know, some peace to be made with neoconservatives who had held these never Trump positions. We're seeing, obviously, some of the funders have come around. But I, I think you, you've hit on something here, which is that... Um, you know, two of the biggest uh, funders of sort of the neoconservatives, um, which would be Sheldon Adelson and Bernie Marcus, um, and also happen to be two of the Republican Party's biggest donors. And they also happen to be um, two of the biggest donors to to Donald Trump. So uh, maybe there's daylight in some places between the neoconservatives, uh, between some neoconservatives and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, in a lot of ways, that their, their worlds overlap uh Considerably, um, I, I guess. Finally, I, I also would want to point out that um, donors such as Sheldon Adelson did uh, did not help Donald Trump until he was the nominee, um, and, and I think that pr- Trump probably remembers that as well. That he won the nomination without their help, without the help of re- major Republican mega donors. Uh, so uh, I, I suspect that there might still be a little bit of a grudge there, or at least um, you know he feels he won them over as opposed to them uh, uh, approaching him early and, and sort of making him their their candidate, as it were, or as he referred to it when it appeared that uh, Sheldon Adelson was going to be funding Marco Rubio's campaign, uh, that, uh, that, that Sheldon Adelson was going to turn Marco Rubio into his perfect little puppet. You wrote this, uh, the most recent piece you've written on uh, the FDD had something to do with uh, what appeared to be a State Department-funded 
front group of some kind or a cutout organization, and maybe I'm wrong about it being a cutout organization, but called irondisinfo.org. It w- was this a story that you wrote about, was this directly about that same uh, like troll network that was attacking anti-Iranian regime change activists online? Or That's right. It was, okay. So go, yeah. go into what what this had to do with the Foundation for, Democ- Foundation for Defense of Democracies and how it also directly links back to the U.S. State Department. So there was this uh, Twitter account and website called Iran Disinfo, uh, which uh, uh, on its website said that it was receiving State Department funding for, uh, for, for its work. Uh, and, and the Twitter account over the past, <clears throat> maybe over the past four weeks, was uh, rather viciously attacking, uh, especially Iranian-Americans who were opposed to, um, to the Trump administration's maximum pressure uh, uh, strategy towards towards Iran or those who were largely opposed to strategies involving um, uh, coerced regime change in Iran. And and what was particularly interesting is it seemed as if um, the account and the website were uh, republishing and promoting the work of uh, Mark Dubowitz and uh, an FDD expert named uh, Saeed Gassemi, I think Gassemi is how he pronounces his name, um, who, or sorry, Gassemi, Gassemi, uh, promoting the work of an FDD expert named uh, Saeed Gassiminejad, who was uh, cross-posting his work on FDD. Actually, FDD had a section on their website called the Iran Disinformation Project, uh, uh, Misinformation Project. Uh, uh, Sorry. FDD had a section on its website called the Iran Disinformation Project, um, which was publishing the exact same materials that were going up on the Iran Disinfo website, all published by this guy, uh, by this uh, FDD expert. Now, Mark Dubowitz has claimed that FDD was not uh, involved in in this project, uh, but we have not received any confirmation about whether the FDD expert, uh, whose work was sort of central in this, was involved in the project. but, but it's this interesting overlap where you have FDD essentially providing the intellectual uh, and, uh, and the research firepower for this um, State Department-funded project that had been going after um, uh, American-based um, uh, supporters of diplomacy with Iran. Um, it, it certainly raised legal questions about about whether the State Department could be using its funds to target uh, American citizens or American residents. Um, And it raised questions about exactly what FDD's um, involvement in this project was, whether even if it wasn't a formal one from FDD, the organizational level, um, it seems as if at least there was some personnel overlap or at least uh, collaborative uh, uh, effort at at some level. I saw Mark Dubowitz on Twitter acting like it was just like a tinfoil hat kind of conspiracy to suggest there was some kind of direct relationship between these two, which is just kind of absurd because we already know that on November 1st, 2017, the FDD announced um, that Mike Pompeo uh, had given them access, exclusive access to over 3000 files of the Bin Laden cache. And of course, they spun it to somehow show that bin Laden had some kind of relationship with Iran and Al-Qaeda, and Iran might have been involved in 9-11. But we already know that there's been other overlap as well. So for example, uh, in June of 2017, Politico reported that FDD CEO uh, Mark Dubowitz was submitting memos to Trump um, recommending steps towards regime change in Iran. Now, it's not clear if these were just you know, if you're just sending policy recommendations unsolicited or if this was actually some kind of inner circle exchange. 
Um, in January 2019, so this is the most recent thing I could find, John Bolton, Trump's current national security advisor, hired FDD senior advisor Richard Goldberg as his assistant. This, you know, this is a direct, you know, someone from the FDD being hired in the Trump administration, while all these things appear to be overlapping. So it is, it is strange that, and I don't know why Mark Dubowitz would have been so quick to say that some kind of conspiracy theory, or perhaps maybe there is even something legally dubious about that connection that they don't want to expose. I, I really don't know what to make of that. But do you have any more things to say about that? Uh, I mean, I, I would just point to the, the additional overlap of, of their biggest funders. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, and, and the fact that uh, both Bernie Marcus and Sheldon Adelson have also been big advocates of John Bolton, and they both also funded his his super PAC that was basically biggest funders, current and former. That's right. Bernie Marcus contributed uh, $500,000 or something to um, uh, John Bolton's super PAC. Uh, Sheldon Adelson reportedly, you know, basically personally intervened to help get uh, uh, John Bolton his job as the national security advisor. Um, at that point, sort of over the dead body of John Kelly, who didn't want John Bolton anywhere near the White House. Um, and so, I mean, it's clear that these, these people have used their connections to try to promote uh, an uber hawk. Uh, John Bolton, and and they've also been generous supporters of FDD's work. So I don't think it should come as any surprise that that this administration and FDD seem to be working very closely together. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the only surprising thing to me about it was that we were sort of, I guess, beaten over the head with this narrative that this never-Trumper phenomenon had caused such a rift that Trump had cut out I think there were articles even circulating after he got in office saying this was the death of think tanks. Like in D.C., this was like the final nail in the coffin. That's the only thing that's surprising to me, but at the same time, it almost seems really naive to think that. I mean, why would, you know, why would Trump, it's not like Trump, you know, knows how to conduct foreign policy. What experts could he, could he tap? I mean, these are really, it doesn't seem like there's really that many foreign policy experts in D.C. who aren't part of these kinds of networks in general, so... <laughs> That that that's right, and I mean, I'd say at even a more simplistic level, Trump uh, ran by grabbing onto the third rail that a lot of people, um, especially in foreign policy, said you couldn't touch, which is Trump grabbed that third rail of saying that you can't um, uh, keep 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 having ever expanding wars in the Middle East, that we need to end the forever wars, um, and, and and those views were popular, probably more popular than. Uh, most of the people in the Beltway had anticipated. Um, he also tapped into the the general animosity and distrust toward um, toward politicians and towards the corruption that goes on in Washington. Uh, he tapped into the resentment toward mega donors like Sheldon Adelson. Uh, but when push came to shove, he needed he 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 needed or wanted those mega donors' money to support his campaign. And uh, moreover, he had no actual plan for his so-called draining the swamp. Uh, instead, he sort of showed up, I think, kind of naively in Washington uh, and, and realized that, that the available advisors, the available experts, especially those that uh, his, some of his biggest funders were, were advocating for, were, were, were deeply embedded in a Washington think tank establishment that uh, – that, that has consistently pushed for um, uh, uh, militarism and 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 regime change strategies uh, in the Middle East and and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it even surprised me to find out that Kimberly Kagan from the Institute for the Study of War was um, was uh, coordinating with a bunch of GOP people on on I, th- I believe it was Syria policy as recently as 
I think like January 2019. These people are are the experts. You know, Fred Kagan, for example, has been trotted out as the expert for almost two decades. That's right. I mean, I th- and I think a lot of it uh, points to just the lack of accountability uh, for uh, for bad foreign policy uh, advice and and experts. Um, you know, th- th- there seems to be no no mistake you can make as a foreign policy expert that actually is permanently held against you, uh, particularly if you advocated for wars that were disastrous to the countries in which they were fought, as well as to uh, the members of the U.S. military that 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 went and and got injured or died uh, in these endeavors for which we have very little to show. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw kind of a, a random question at you now because I I as much as I've looked at the FDD, a lot of the names involved, a lot of the so there's the fa- they sort of the famous names or the infamous names I should say like James Woolsey, uh, former CIA director, uh, Michael Ledeen, um are two of the main ones that sort of pop out to me um, of their members, but it seems like the people who's do all these media appearances, especially recently, there's been a major uptick in FDD media appearances, specifically on Fox and CNN. Um, And I just wanted to give you a list of names. And if any of them jump out to you, um, you know, stop me and explain who these people are, because I've just made a little list of who I've been seeing on television recently. So these are all FDD members. Um, and most of these appearances are about this Iran, quote-unquote, pressure campaign. So one of them is named uh, Benham Ben Talablu, Jonathan Shanzer, Shanzer, Shanzer. Uh, John Hanna, uh, Bradley Bowman, David Asher, of course, Mark Dubowitz, uh, David Maxwell, and of course, Clifford May. Um, so any of those people in particular pop out to you that you think are especially dangerous or prolific I mean, as I say, I think I think Mark Dubowitz is probably one of the most effective um, voices on this because he always downplays the um, uh, the regime change or uh, military component of what his uh, and FDD's uh, proposed strategies uh, could likely entail. Um, it's always he always has this you know near term reasonable sounding goal of. You know, if we only ratchet up X or Y sanction, then it'll just position us better to negotiate uh, a, a more restrictive nuclear deal that will uh, better secure U.S. interests uh, and make the region safer. Uh, and, and it's consistently that that argument, which I think uh, gets him a great deal of traction. And, and it's inherently, uh, I believe, disingenuous. Of course, yeah. From my cursory looking into this, he seems to be the most um, sort of vocal guy who goes out there the most but is clifford may would you say clifford may the um is also pretty dangerous i mean he's the founder of this organization yeah uh so he's he's certainly influential uh i i think he's sort of his amount of media uh space he's taken up has gone down a bit um he, he has a regular column i believe with the washington times uh, he, he's less sophisticated than mark dubowitz i think in terms of being able to present these arguments in ways that um uh, are politically appealing. For instance, he was, you know, defending sort of the forever wars or the concept of forever wars in the Washington Times, um, and, and that's not. Um, uh, I, I think uh, it's it's not as in touch with the political moment as, uh, as as some other folks have. That that that's just you know, if you're defending forever wars right now, you're on the losing side of 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 the American political debate. 
Yeah, which is another reason why some of these neoconservatives are probably smart enough to know how to make their rhetoric sound appealing or know, or know what not to say. Um, because obviously yeah. that's something that most Americans are not excited about at this point. Right. You, you should read the room a little. And I, I think Clifford May, um, for whatever reasons, is, is not really doing so right now. Yeah, yeah. It, it appears to me, sometimes I feel that this is maybe perhaps me being paranoid, but when I see these FTD people um, going on Fox News and CNN, especially recently after these um, this tension has been ratcheted up between the United States and Iran, it appears that a lot of them almost appear to be speaking for the Trump administration's policy as if they have some kind of inside line into it. And after all that we've talked about, I mean, do you think that that's kind of a paranoid thing to be picking up on? Or do you think that it's safe to assume that perhaps the FDD, based on you know what we've already talked about, does have some kind of inside track into the Trump administration's policy on Iran? I mean, I know that's speculation, I mean, I just, but what do you, how do you I feel? I mean, when you have Richard Goldberg going to work for John Bolton, uh, there's numerous stories about, about Mark Dubowitz and other FDD experts uh, advising and consulting at the Treasury Department as well as at the State Department. Uh, I, I think that certainly there's, there's a picture being painted of uh, FDD, if not uh, uh, writing the blueprint for um, – the Trump administration's uh, Iran strategy, uh, then if not that, then they are at least heavily influencing uh, how that strategy is being put together. Uh, I I think that there's plenty to to suggest that uh, FDD is is at this point probably the most influential outside group um, uh, influencing the the Trump administration's decisions on these matters. Um, And and with the ongoing sort of exodus of experts from uh, the State Department, from the intelligence services, uh, uh, you know, but there's there's plenty of of good news stories out there to suggest that there's effectively sort of a brain drain being created uh, in these institutions that otherwise would be uh, tasked with uh, formulating uh, policy options. Uh, and I think in that space, FDD has has enormous opportunity and an enormous advantage uh, at uh, getting their ideas in front of uh, people like John Bolton, in front of Mike Pompeo, and in front of Donald Trump. I guess what's really surprising to me about all this is this seems like it should be a much bigger deal than it it is, or it's not getting very much play in the press. And I find that kind of troubling. I, I mean, I think that there's a couple things at play here. One is that um, you know people are in scandal fatigue with this administration. Yeah. Uh, you know what what it takes to hold the public attention or the media's interest uh, in, in a topic right now has is in, the bar is incredibly high just because of the sheer volume of um, of crap coming out of this administration of, uh, of of outright criminality in some cases of things that would be serious political scandals warranting congressional investigation uh, in in other contexts. Uh, it's very hard to to know where to look and how to focus. Uh, And I think that that coupled with the fact that the American public in general don't pay a great deal of attention to foreign policy, or they don't pay as much attention to it as they do to many other policy matters that affect more domestic uh, issues and uh, day-to-day, day-to-day impacting their lives, uh, that that I think it's uh, it, it makes it easy to manipulate the U.S. foreign policy. I think there's not that much competition if you want to do that. Uh, the, pol- the the think tank world in Washington is very insular and it's not that big, and it's uh, and it largely un- doesn't challenge internally itself. There's very little internal debate, uh, and I think that that kind of creates a, a perfect storm for a uh, institution such as FDD to uh, gain an outsized influence. And in this case, push a president who truthfully might not even really 
want to be pulled into another to a military confrontation into another war um but 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 despite that uh he he may find himself there with under the um uh, under the uh, with, with when you have somebody like John Bolton as your national security advisor, and you have FDD uh, uh, helping uh, develop your 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 maximum pressure strategy. Yeah, and I kind of tend to agree with the idea that Trump. I highly doubt he wants to launch some kind of full scale war against Iran. It would seem to only be be a negative for him. But I, I guess what makes me worried is, you know, going back to that Sheldon Adelson comment, I, I do worry that there are people in his administration who are so crazy and hawkish that they would consider using like a tactical nuclear strike, preemptive strike of some kind, you know, if they feel that that could be serve as some kind of warning or I, I don't know. But I, I you know, I genuinely, genuinely worry about that I mean that, and, and and that's the danger. I think with a lot of the of the um, more coercive uh, and in many cases sort of military um, strategies proposed by um, Iran hawks is that there's very often this notion of oh well you know you can do a targeted strike, you can do a surgical strike, you can do a, a strike as a warning, um, and you know hey that's in some cases I have no doubt that there are certain um, scenarios that could play out that might. Um, uh, at least in the short term, have that effect. But what none of these people who advocate these sort of policies can tell us is exactly where is that line where um, where maximum pressure, where saber rattling, where maybe a warning, where maybe a targeted strike, a surgical strike. Um, what, what at what point does 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 that just blow up into in, into a mass retaliation from Iran, them closing the Strait of Hormuz, uh, and something that's quickly escalating into a regional war? Um, you know, w- w- what is the tipping point? W- what would be the actions the United States could take that 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 would cause that? What would be the ones that would fall short of that? And I don't think any of them have a clear answer to that because that's simply something they don't know. But they're playing uh, with policy strategies um, and, 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 and potentially military uh, tactics that could draw us into that space. And, and I think that that's very, very dangerous. So I wanted to, before we wrapped up, I wanted to ask you about the overlap and, and the differences between the way Trump's administration um, is dealing with Iran on the surface and the way the Foundation for Defense of Democracies has been recommending. As far as the overlaps and the differences with the Trump administration. Yes. Um, there. So there's this clip I found on CNN uh, where um, a guy from Foundation for Defense of Democracies uh, are you still there? I'm here. Oh, okay. Um, th- so this clip on CNN, um, the CNN host shows a Foundation for Defense of Democracies member named Benham Ben Talablu. Um, he shows him a Trump tweet that says, uh, the fake news media is hurting our country with its fraudulent and highly inaccurate coverage of Iran. It is scattershot, poorly sourced, and dangerous at least Iran doesn't know what to think, which at this point may very well be a good thing. Well, I guess I should explain that in this clip, he asked the Foundation for Defense of Democracies guy if this is a smart strategy, if they agree with sort of this mystery, where Trump seems to be wanting to create mystery, or he says, you know, at least they don't know what to think, which at this point may very well be a good thing. And um, the Foundation for Defense of Democracy guy appears to make it seem like this is part of the pressure campaign. Um, And I found that interesting because, and I just want to know what you think about this. Is the Trump administration on some level 
playing a good cop, bad cop game to their advantage. Um, where, you know, Trump maybe still wants to maintain this idea that he is a dove on some level that doesn't want to go into war, but his administration appears to be driving towards war. And I'm and and you know, those two things seem to be simultaneously in play. And, you know, the FDD guy seems to think that's part of the strategy. And I, I just want to know what what is what do you think about that? I mean, do you think the Trump administration is using any kind of good cop, bad cop dynamic here on purpose with Iran? You know, I, I think that all of these things can be true at once. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I w- it wouldn't surprise me if uh, um, they've at least tried to paint what's going on as, you know, some sort of a, a really Machiavellian, sophisticated um, um, good cop, bad cop routine. <laughs> uh, at the same time, it can also be true that, um, uh, you know, and based off of uh, plenty of reporting, suggests that Trump is uncomfortable with how uh, far Bolton has gotten in 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 bringing the United States closer to 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 an actual um, uh, military clash of some sort in the Gulf with uh, with Iran, uh, and, and he probably wants to play it off as that you know, it, it, and certainly when he talks about Bolton publicly, he'll say, oh, you know, Bolton's you know way more hawkish than I am, but you know, I moderate him. Uh, all right, well, uh, I mean, based off of what's happened over the past several weeks. Um, you know, he certainly waited to, to 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 getting toward nearly a point of crisis to to try to moderate John Bolton, and yeah. I'm actually not convinced, given Bolton's track record, that he can be moderated. Exactly. Uh, I, I don't think that's exactly in his personality or in his DNA. So, um, yeah, sure. I, why why not? I guess that's the best way you could portray that what's been going on is that this is a sophisticated strategy of good cop bad cop. Um, uh, at the same time, it, it, it's a little bit undermining to accept that that would be the public image you want to put forward is that somehow there's a, a split or a divide inside your own administration that yeah. you don't have a cohesive strategy. Uh, you know, as, as a leader, um, that doesn't seem like it reflects terribly well uh, to suggest that you have factions uh, working off of each other within your administration. Uh, it's one thing to have cabinet members who disagree and debate, uh, even even you know heatedly. It's another when it's unclear exactly what your strategy is uh, and, and what it is that you're actually trying to accomplish. Uh, and, and I think that that's the strategy that we've seen. Uh, and if that is supposed to be some sort of a good cop, bad cop routine, um, it's probably not being executed terribly well. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I I totally agree with you there, and and that's I mean it's interesting because yeah, Trump on some level, I mean he's got such a big ego, he wants to be in control. It would be kind of ridiculous to think that he would want to put out the narrative that John Bolton or other people in his administration are undermining him. But on the other hand, he did recently say in an interview, and in my opinion, very disingenuously and in a very phony way, made it sound like the military-industrial complex was somehow strong-arming him into keeping troops in the Middle East that he wanted to remove. So it seems like he's comfortable on some level when he's when it's like a faceless enemy. I, you know, I guess the military-industrial complex, he's not calling anyone out directly to say that they're undermining him. And, I, and I, I don't know. I mean, that to me is strange that he still understands that to a lot of people that makes him almost look like some kind of hero or that he's taking the mask off and explaining how things really work. And that, that just is baffling to me. And a lot of people on the left sort of ate that up and said, well, Trump's, this is the real Trump coming through. He's telling the truth here. But I don't, I don't, I don't believe it's the truth. And I, I mean, I know we're kind of going off on a more general, broad thing here, but what do you, what do you think about that? Uh, 
I mean, talk is cheap. And I mean, obviously he promised and he probably genuinely does want to for, you know, I assume, uh, you know, bring down the number of, uh, of U.S. military deployments in uh, in Afghanistan and in um, and in Syria, uh, ideally down to zero, probably in his mind. And I'm sure that when he's raised this, the 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 Joint Chiefs, uh, his National Security Advisor, his Secretary of Defense, his Secretary of State, uh, you know, give him a list of potential consequences of doing this, which scare him. And he says, "Well, I'm not going to do that, but now I need to come up with a reason of, <laughs> of why I am not doing it." And he says, "Well, it's the military-industrial complex." Now, I think the military-industrial complex is actually a useful concept. It does exist. I don't believe that you know Boeing Raytheon uh, uh, General Dynamics though uh, played a central role in in persuading him uh, not to 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 draw down U.S. Uh, troop deployments in in, <laughs> in the region. Uh, I think that it was simply uh, being afraid to take the uh, the the to make the decision. To, to draw down the troops because obviously that will come with a certain risks and consequences. Uh, perhaps he should have thought of that before he started to make these promises about about uh, drawing down the troop levels. Uh, but now that he's been informed, it probably scared him. Um, I'm sure that they can present that in a way that's pretty scary. And uh, and 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 he has to be able to explain, especially going into the election season, uh, why it is that he hasn't uh, fulfilled uh, what many saw as being campaign promises. Now, I, I do think that potentially going into another war in the region uh, might be something that, that even he realizes is probably going too far in terms of uh, what he promised his base uh, and, and, and what he ran on in 2016. I mean, very much Hillary was being portrayed as the um, as sort of the, the regime change uh, candidate. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and he was not. Uh, and, and he capitalized on that. And I think it benefited him at some level. So uh, I, I would I think I think he understands that politically um, uh, a war with Iran in particular, would be very bad. Um, but at the same time, he uh, is afraid to uh, go as far as fulfilling his uh, promises with regard to uh, drawing down troop levels in Afghanistan and, and in Syria. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree. Um, uh, well, I wanted to jump back because um, we forgot to talk about Sebastian Gorka. Um, which you brought up to me before we started this interview was actually in the FDD for a while. Um, yeah, until a few years before he uh, wound up in the Trump uh, Trump orbit. Uh, I, I guess go into uh, how you think he directly influenced the Trump administration or or Trump directly, um, because when I've seen him talk, um, I was really taken aback. Actually, he did a recent C-SPAN appearance. I don't know if you saw this, Eli where he appeared to be using a lot of language that like left anti-imperialists people use um, to push his own agenda. And I found that very fascinating because the only other person I've really seen who's done, who's kind of used that rhetoric, but weaponized it from the right is sort of Steve Bannon. And I'm just wondering if you, if you've heard Sebastian Gorka speak in a similar way to that, but then also what, what kind of influence he would have over Trump. Um, But what, what, what did he do in the FDD and where does this, uh, uh, you know, where did he learn to talk like a leftist anti-imperialist, but use it to, you know, weaponize it for right, a right-wing agenda? Because I find that very fascinating. Uh, well, I think that his uh, use of language sort of borrowing from the anti-imperialist left, uh, I, I think he probably hit the nail on the head that Steve Bannon 
is uh, the other person who who did that extensively. Uh, and, and I think that in, in Gorka's case, he he took on that language and learned from it uh, a combination of because he also worked at Breitbart. Um, yes. And he uh, and then also being around Steve Bannon and in the Trump campaign. Um, and he was working in the White House when Bannon was as well. So I, I think he got that from Steve Bannon. He's very much positioned himself uh, as sort of this um, um, guru on the alt right in terms of national security. And most of us sort of find him to be a comical character. But he seems to, you know, at least, hey, he got the president's ear, uh, at least for a period of time. Uh, now at FDD, he did not talk like that. Is my recollection. I mean, I've actually attended events where he was present when he worked at FDD. He was there for like seven years, I think. Um, he was, you know, sort of a run-of-the-mill uh, uh, national security, uh, counterterrorism supposed expert, uh, without putting out any greatly uh, controversial or uh, insightful ideas, um, which incidentally is, has sort of defined his career as saying things like, you know, the way to, to, to defeat uh, uh, ISIS is to, is to say radical Islam. Well, okay. Uh, you know, and then the president said it, then uh, ISIS didn't, didn't end. Um, but that's sort of the, the lightweight thinking that I think is sort of defined Sebastian Gorka's career. Uh, but but I, I think the role that FDD played in his career was giving him legitimacy within the Beltway. I mean, yeah. they gave him a platform for seven years. They gave him a title. Uh, he was regularly going on television uh, with the FDD uh, uh, affiliation. Um, and, and I think it probably helped really position him in, in Washington as a as a more serious expert than he really was. Um, you know, and, and his... Uh, you know, n- now that he's gotten a lot more scrutiny, and I was, you know, I, I, I had this had broke the story about his his membership or affiliation to the Vitezi Rend, which is this uh, or organization that uh, uh, whose members collaborated with the Nazis and was uh, listed as, as a state department by the State Department as a group uh, whose members would be uh, <laughs> after World War II would be uh, uh, considered to be Nazi collaborators and uh, and face various restrictions. Uh, you know, and none of this was new. <laughs> These are all aspects of who he was that anybody could have gone digging for. And the point is, is that FDD certainly didn't know or they didn't care. Uh, yeah, and this wasn't a him. this wasn't a troll like the OK sign. This was just like a really weird, obscure thing that he he wore. Um, yeah, that directly linked back to what you're talking about. And if people listening um, are completely unfamiliar with what Eli had just said. Uh, the last time we had Eli on the podcast, um, the first time, uh, we talked all about this and the Sebastian's Gorka's links to this uh, this group. Um, so I recommend yeah. going back to listen to that. I mean, the thing that caught my eye was when he wore the the, the medal or the button <laughs> of this group at, at one of the Trump's inaugural balls. But that's actually only one of two known photos of him wearing that. The other one I found was from when he was probably a young man. Um, and that photo was readily accessible. It was floating around. I think I found it you know, on, 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 on Sebastian Gorka's Facebook uh, account. It, it was... Uh, uh, it was it was around. Anybody that went looking could have found it. Uh, the point is that FDD they didn't care about his questionable academic credentials. They didn't care about the fact that when he was in Hungary, where he had openly supported in a television interview a group that was anti-Semitic, racist, and engaged in violence. Uh, the, the guy is is all around sort of a snake oil salesman, and FDD certainly didn't couldn't tell. They didn't notice or they didn't care. Yeah. Um. And interesting, I mean, because, I mean, Michael Ledeen was probably one of their most prominent members, and he really fits the bill of that <laughs> description as well. Absolutely. And, I mean, he's he's one of the most 
uh, brazen neoconservatives, I would say, in D.C., and he still is um, to this day. That's a difference between a lot of these other neocons in the FDD who have learned to sort of massage their rhetoric and downplay the idea of military strikes in Iran. But Michael Adin has not. Um, he, he's, you know, and he's quite old now, so maybe that's part of uh, why he's so candid. I guess to wrap it up here, Eli, I mean, should the main takeaway here uh, of our discussion be that this is more or less business as usual in D.C., that that policy wonk uh, think tanks funded by billionaire mega donor hawks that directly stovepiped in talking points to the Trump administration or other, you know, uh, previous administrations? Or is this something worse or markedly different than what we have seen before with the Obama or the Bush administration and their relationship with think tanks? I mean, in, in many ways, uh, anything involving special interests are worse under Trump because this is the administration that's the easiest to manipulate, the easiest to influence, and the easy and the easiest to, to sort of to get access to. Um, so in that sense, it's worse. Uh, but I think that what we're seeing, though, is it is symptomatic of business as usual in uh, Washington's foreign policy think tank community, which is that, you know, Basically, legal corruption by uh, uh, you know kleptocrats, uh, some of whom are not American. Uh, many of these think tanks take money from foreign donors. FDD has even supposedly accidentally taken money from the UAE. Uh, <laughs> they say they returned. They said it was against their policies, which, to fairness to FDD, is a policy that most Washington think tanks don't have uh, about refusing to take foreign money. Um, it is 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 unfortunately sort of accepted, and and it forms the backbone of the uh, of, of the of the foreign policy establishment, and it is the pipeline through which people get into administrations uh, and come to great positions of influence. Uh, it is deeply troubling, and and I, I hope that something we take away from the Trump era is um, should be uh, how incestuous and how easily influenced uh, the policymaking process can be. Uh, and I think using FDD and U.S.-Iran uh, policy as a case study uh, is really valuable because you get to see how, um, you know, for relatively small sums of money, tens of millions of dollars, um, a small group of mega donors have uh, managed to uh, to essentially control the uh, how the foreign policy establishment in Washington largely talks about. Uh, Iran strategy, as well as uh, directly influence uh, the personnel that the president is putting in key positions, uh, and probably even directly influencing the president's decision making uh, uh, directly. Um, and, and I think that that that, that is um, something we really need to take a closer look at um, as we talk about, um, you know, the era of Trump's corruption uh, and all of the lessons that, that, that we're trying to learn from from what we're living through right now. Very well said. Um, and I just wanted to just uh, touch on one more thing. To me personally, and I, maybe this is just, I, and I don't know why I feel this way, but the, the I guess there is, there does seem to be a difference between previous administrations where the FDD at least from my understanding, doesn't seem to be in the necessarily the same kind of consensus building mentality that some of these other think tanks in DC have tried to do before. Like, like for example, uh, the Bill Crystal's last think tank, the Foreign Policy Initiative, by design was about crossing the aisle and getting Democrats and Republicans to go along with their foreign policy ideas. But this seems a little different in the sense that it's more narrow. 
seems less interested in consensus building. And the actual, what we can see on the surface level from the Trump administration seems far more sloppy in terms of this escalation towards war than we've seen before. Like one example of that is even Lindsey Graham was uh, complaining initially that he wasn't in the loop and that the Trump administration was just keeping everybody in the dark. And I don't know if that gives me more hope or makes me more uneasy that this seems to be there seems to be less of a consensus surrounding this, or at least what we can see on, you know, in public. So how do you feel about it? Do you feel, I mean, that's maybe is a ridiculous question that more consensus behind a drive towards war would make me feel less uneasy, but how does it, does it make you feel more uneasy, less uneasy that this is, it seems like the Trump uh, administration is kind of going at this alone. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I, I I would say that FDD uh, until 2008 actually did manage to hold some um, some sort of bipartisan um, weight. Um, okay. And, and they had a spinoff organization that that ran a series of uh, attack ads uh, going after Democrats, um, um, urging them to pass the the, the terror surveillance bill. Um, which was designed at providing retroactive immunity to, um, I believe it was to telecom companies that um, had worked with the Bush administration's then uh, uh, warrantless uh, wiretapping and surveillance programs. And and, and following that, uh, pretty much all of the um, uh, Democrats um, who had served on FD's board quit. I think it includes the like uh, Elliot Engel, Chuck Schumer, uh, Jim Marshall, uh, Donna Brazile. Um, and, and I, th- I think that from that point onwards, it became far more of a Republican focus. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Donna Brazil? Say that yep. again? Uh, yeah. Do- Donna Brazil was, I believe, on one of their board of advisors. Wow. That's really – that's yeah. surprising. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I knew Eric Edelman was was part of them until uh, fairly recently. So I knew there was – I mean, I, I had some idea that there was maybe more of a consensus-building aspect to it. That's that's surprising that someone like Donna Brazil yeah. would be part of that. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, I became far more partisan. Or um, now, that said, foreign policy making isn't exactly uh, uh, the most partisan space. It's very transpartisan or bipartisan. Uh, probably too much so. Probably too bipartisan, at least. In that there's very little, you know, what would be a Democratic or Republican foreign policy positions. I mean, you can find plenty of members of Congress on either side that you know would fit into either of the models you might throw out about what each party is associated with. So uh, I, I think that in terms of the explicit um, sort of hawkishness or war making, I don't even think that's all that new. I mean, I, I think as we talked about earlier in this interview, you know, the, uh, you know, the Project for a New American Century uh, um, and, and, very, and the various astroturf groups that were advocating for the invasion of Iraq. Um, now you could say, well, that was in sort of the post 9-11 era. Um, I would say that that era is probably extended then longer than it should have. Uh, but I, I think FDD is very much in that vein. Thanks so much for um, talking to me today about the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, um, and I hope you continue to um, track them as you've been doing, um, because there are <laughs> really <laughs> there really aren't uh, very many people doing that, and it's quite alarming um, based well, on what we know. Thank you for paying attention to that. <laughs> yeah, where can people go to check out your work? Where's the best place for people to follow you on social media or uh, other places? Eli Clifton is my Twitter handle, uh, or read my stuff at Loblaw. Awesome. All right, Eli. Well, um, have a great rest of your day, and uh, thanks for coming on Media Roots Radio again. Thank you. Take care.